Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm very excited about the guests that we have today. It's been a long in the in time in the making, you know, to really get this uh, episode done. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, better late than never. So again, today we're going to be talking about building, scaling, restructuring boards. I mean, you name it, you know, a little bit of everything in between. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Corbin Petra. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you, Alejandro. I love your energy. I'm glad we finally uh, finally got this going. So so give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Ohio? Yeah, I grew up I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio, as as you mentioned. And really, you know, I think I think those early beginnings were what exposed me to to lots of different types of people. Um, how they interacted with the world, different economic backgrounds, and really set me up with a foundation of, of service, which, you know, healthcare is a, a great career for somebody who has a commitment to, to service to others. So, you know, that's, that's sort of my background. I was a, a, an athlete, so I ended up going to college as a, as a distance runner. So really that, that foundation of, of hard work. And Well, there's quite a lot of, uh, you know, relation there between marathons and building companies, because obviously building a company is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Have you sensed that perhaps that competitive nature that you were developing back then, you know, has really helped you, you know, as, as you're a founder now? Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a competitive person, but I think it's the foundation of hard work, right? Like any, any athlete, you're, you're perfecting your, your trade and it's particularly with running and it was a, I was a distance runner. So I've run a couple, a couple marathons. It's, it's that foundation of, of hard work. And as you see your work play out and, and lead to success, it sort of solidifies that hard work is uh, a precursor to, to getting the things done that you want to get done. And, you know, it's a, it's one of the tenets that I believe strongly. And I believe, uh, you know, a foundation and a life of hard work can be incredibly rewarding, no matter what the, the career path. And in your case, I mean, you studied on some of the best universities, right? So you studied in Yale, you did history, then you went to Wharton, where you got your MBA. Uh, and you did a little of, um, you know, different stints uh, early on, whether it was in consulting or perhaps investment banking. 
but you ended up in the world of healthcare. So how did you land in healthcare and why didn't you pursue maybe, you know, a career in consulting or investment banking if you had like, you know, kind of like an insider on, on how that would look like? Well, it, it, what, what you can't see with some of my background is all, all, of, all of those threads of consulting of, you know, early first, my first job was at a healthcare tech, tech company, investment banking. The foundation of all those was advising healthcare companies. So it was always within healthcare. It was learning how the different components of healthcare, the different verticals work together. So payer, provider, med device, pharma, how they intersect, um, how technology can be an enabler, how data can enhance and improve care and care delivery. So um, all of that sort of foundation was continuing to, it was a great sort of lesson on all the different threads within within healthcare. That's that's sort of my my background in in consulting. And I think it's when you're exposed to so many different verticals in healthcare, and you know, healthcare is unique. It's different than a lot of different uh, industries in that it's so complex. There are so many different parts of it. There's a different entity paying than than is getting a service. There's the consumer, but how much you know willingness to pay does the consumer have? And I think when you get exposed to all that, you realize all the challenges, all the flaws, and it almost emboldens you to want to change something. Um, I think it's actually really hard to go right into healthcare as an innovator um, without exposure to all the different mechanics of, of how healthcare works in the United States in particular. And talking about the uh, directing, you know, healthcare as well. I mean, you were in charge of the 13 billion uh, allocation, you know, that was happening there in Massachusetts. So what were you doing there specifically? So I was chief operating officer of Medicaid in Massachusetts. So Medicaid is the, it's the program uh, that provides health insurance for the lo lower income Americans. So there are 50 states, there's 50 different Medicaid programs. Um, each of those programs are structured a little bit differently. And it's a huge um, payer within within the healthcare system in the United States. So I ran all the operations there, had a big team that focused on, you know, making sure that our, you know, the 1.3 million uh, Massachusetts residents who we served, um, you know, had a touch point around how their care was delivered. You know, obviously we paid and and created new programs to, to deliver better care. Um, that was sort of my piece there. We were we were implement, implementing part of the Affordable Care Act um, in my time at the state. And at what point do you decide that, hey, maybe, you know, I'm not so sure about being in, in, in the public side of things. Maybe I want to be more on the private side, you know, as an operator. I mean, at what point do you realize that's the case? And, and when does Benavera Health come knocking? Yeah. So, I mean, I love my time at Medicaid, mission-driven, really understanding, again, how one of these big payers works from a government perspective. One of the things that we did there was we... Um, we launched, obviously, we implemented the Affordable Care Act, which in the United States, it was the expansion of Medicaid. So we did that. And we also designed a number of different ways of paying providers for their services that really encouraged them to deliver value-oriented care. So, you know, the value-based care emergence really came after the Affordable Care Act. And I was enthralled by that. And so I wanted to get on the, the, um, the private sector side to really put that into action, put put in a payment model that incentivized providers to do the right thing. So Benavera is a payer provider joint venture. So it's a commercial, it was a commercial payer. Um, it was four hospital systems. And so it was really aligning those incentives to get providers to change how they delivered care. And as part of that joint venture, we spun out a business that 
supported the providers and the payer in really sort of meeting meeting members, meeting patients where they are, going out into their home, addressing a lot of the non-clinical barriers that they had, food insecurity, transportation, housing. There's all those pieces that ultimately you address those things. Somebody doesn't. Somebody gets those things addressed. They don't go into the emergency room. They don't go um, into the hospital, and that ultimately is lower cost for the system. It's better for for everyone involved. So that was um, that was what that was what came out of Medicaid was this you know very strong interest in putting into into place a lot of these payment models that we were doing um, at the state. And obviously, at this point, you had access to to really seeing you know healthcare from from many different angles uh, and. And I guess at what point, you know, do you realize, hey, I think that it's time for me, you know, to go at it on my own? Because as they say, ideas, they take time to incubate. You know, they're there dormant. We don't even know that they are there. But there is perhaps certain triggering events that push us over the edge to to take action. So what do you think was that in your case to really, you know, get started with Eleanor Health? Well, at my time at Benavera, what I really loved about it was the patient-facing work. So we built out a team that went out into patients' homes. And what we discovered in that work was that so many of the different things that a, that a patient was dealing with was really impacting in the root cause of their high costs in the healthcare system, of them going into the emergency room. So they may show up on a data feed um, or in our algorithm because of poorly managed diabetes, let's say. But you go out to their home and you realize, oh, no, this person has addiction. This person has uh, a mental health condition. But that wasn't being surfaced and it wasn't being addressed. And so it really made me realize there's a, there's a major opportunity to, to improve people's lives by addressing the root cause of their, their challenges with, with their health. And so much of that sits with, you know, non-clinical components as well as mental health components. And so it was really that that said, you know, there's no one doing this. There's no one who's really addressing these these issues in an, you know, an evidence-based whole person way and, and led me to, to create Eleanor Health. So what happened next? What were the early days like? So I part I partnered with with investors early on in in incubating um, the company. Found my co-founder, uh, Dr. Nzinga Harrison, so really found my my clinical counterpart, and she is really the mastermind of of designing our our clinical model. Where I sort of try to figure out how the how the finances work and the business model and and the mission. So early days, I mean the two of us, right? Um, that's always how it is. Um, trying to figure out what is the what's the right path forward and how do you design something that works. The early days are really lonely as a as a startup um, CEO and founder because you're in our model where it's B2B to C, we're trying to sell to health insurance companies. And then ultimately obviously we're we're directly serving patients. So we have you know thousands of patients who we who we serve. But you're trying to sell to payers before you've really proven anything, right? Um, you have to you have to sell with them, sell to them a concept, and it's really hard. It's really lonely, and you get a lot of no's or a lot of come back when you have X, Y, and Z. And so that you know to get that to get the story right, it's important to get investors. Um, it was important for us to get investors so that we could prove out our clinical model. And we'll talk. We'll talk about that because I mean, there's there's quite a lot of things that I like to ask you there. But but before doing so, so that the people that are listening get it, what ended up becoming the business model of Eleanor of Eleanor Health? I mean, how do you guys make money? Yeah, so we are 
uh, a, basically a medical home model. So we're a whole person care delivery model for people affected by substance use disorder and, and mental health needs. And so typically we have um, value-based and um, risk-based arrangements with payers. So we ultimately, we want to get paid if we make people better. The way the healthcare system works is, is it pays based on the number of little tiny things that you do. And so many of those little tiny things that you do don't make people better. We don't want to get paid based on doing a lot of little things that don't help people get better. We want to get paid if we help people improve their health. And so it's changing the payment model. What that means is we're often taking risk on all of a patient's healthcare costs because what we find in our care model is once we start helping a person get better, they're not going to the emergency room. They're not going to, you know, an inpatient stay. And they ultimately cost less um, when we're engaging with them and helping them get better. And that's that's really that's how that's how the model works. That's how we that's how we're we're successful is doing what we know helps get patients better and getting getting paid for it. And how much capital have you guys raised today, Corbin? Uh, we've raised $85 million from a, a great list of investors. We closed our Series C in April. It was led by, by General Catalyst. Um, we brought on a couple new investors there as well, Rethink Impact and North Pond. And then we've, we've had some great investors who've continued to, to support the business along the way. Um, Town Hall Ventures uh, was, was um, our earliest investor. Warburg Pincus led our, our Series B round. We also have investment from Echo Health Ventures, which is a, a strategic, as well as a couple other strategics, um, Horizon, uh, which is um, the health plan out of New Jersey, Emerson Collective, which is a, a great investor. So we have a long list of investors. Um, the longer the list, the more the more you have to, to please that, that group. But really, any investor who's come on is, um, you know, they understand healthcare, they're very mission driven, uh, and they're supportive of what they know it takes to prove out a completely new way of delivering care and a new way of being reimbursed for, for healthcare. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself, you need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dealmakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, I know that, uh, as you were saying, you know, you got to please everyone. But also, typically, you know, when you are receiving money, they want to see it, you know, on your board. And you've done seed Series A, Series B, and now most recently the Series C. But I understand that you went through a restructuring of the board. So give us give us a little of, a, of an insight as to, you know, what happened there and what was that process of restructuring it? Yeah. So, you know, I, I took a step back after, you know, probably right as we were wrapping up our, our actually it was right before our series B. And, you know, I looked at the board and I looked at what we were trying to do in our mission and how we founded the company. We founded the company on equity and diversity. And I was sitting on a board that really lacked diversity. So it was myself and I think five or six males and really wanted to add diversity to the board, diversity and experience, diversity in all the other ways that you can define diversity. And so as we as we went into our Series B, really started to have conversations around what's the right makeup for the board? How do we bring on the right independent? So we, we ended up um, bringing on an independent, Kyle Raffaniello, who's who's a woman operator. Um, so the other, the other piece was that our board was all investors. Um, investors bring, bring a great perspective, but it was, it was overweighted um, toward investors and, you know, people who hadn't run, run companies. So, so the, the other thing I did is I really, you know, I really just addressed it head on with the board where I wanted to change the gender makeup, um, try to bring on operators. And, and so Warbur Pincus, who led our round, um, we worked together to pick um, an outside operator to sit in their board seat. And so that was the other change that took place. And so uh, Christina Minnelli sits sits on our board as as the representative from from Warburg Pincus, and she's a um, she's an operator. And then uh, Andy Slavitt sat on our board. He's very well known within the healthcare space, but he went to work for the Biden administration, and so we had an opportunity to again put another operator on. And so um, we put Rachel Winokur on, um, a female operator as well. And so we very quickly turned the board from being, um, I don't want to say it was not productive, but it was, you know, it was lacking that diverse perspective. It was pretty heavily weighted on the investor side. Um, we really brought in really rich operators who'd been there, um, who understood the dynamics that we were facing, whether it was building teams, um, you know, working with pairs, designing the right approaches and technology. And so it really changed the dynamic of, of the board. And I, I talk about this because I don't think a lot of founders, particularly women, know that they have they have some agency in in defining what their board looks like, particularly if they're raising capital and they have multiple term sheets on the table. 
um, being able to sort of use that as some leverage to to make some of these changes to the board. Board diversity isn't just you know a pet project. It's good for business. It makes us a much more productive company. It it brings in different perspectives that are incredibly valuable to the to the business. So I went from I don't want to say like hating board meetings, but I didn't find them to be enriching to looking forward to meeting with my board and getting their feedback and getting their thoughts and perspective and really leaning on them to help in the areas that I needed support. So it was it was a big mind shift and it was a big change in in the company that I'm pretty proud of. That's incredible. And 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 that says a lot about you as well, Corbin, because when you go or when you are able to to enroll people in in such a transformation, I mean the the level of communication that you need to use is is remarkable because typically, you know, uh, folks that have invested and that are sitting on the board, you know, they they want to have that control and they want to have that influence and voice. So that says a lot about your level of communication and the trust that they had in you. Yeah, and I think I think most investors, in my experience, they just want to be helpful, and so sometimes sometimes they think that's being on the board, and there are certainly some, as as you said, who want control. But I think for for many, they understand that maybe it's not them sitting in that seat if they're if they're humble enough to to take a step back. Um, if they really, you know, all I want to do is make Eleanor Health successful. That is my primary goal. I don't have ego in it. I just want to make Eleanor successful. And I think if a lot of board members feel the same way as well, I mean, they they want the company to be successful. Sometimes there's a control piece, but for many, I think they they can get on board with not being in that seat if they think they can still be helpful. Amazing. Now, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of uh, Eleanor Health today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else? Sure. We're, um, we're, we're in about seven states. So we, we have a, um, you know, an in-person and virtual care model. So as I mentioned, we do deliver, deliver care. It's through a, you know, a community-based um, team approach. So we have psychiatrists, um, physicians, nurse care managers, peers, therapists. We are out in the community. We we do have a physical footprint, so we do have in-person clinics. Um, a lot of our care is delivered virtually. So we're in seven states. We operate in seven states. We have about 35 clinics um, in those seven states. Uh, and we're just under 400 people uh, in those markets. Obviously, strong tech team, building technology to better serve our members, use data, um, to to better understand our, our community members. Um, and yeah, so that's that's sort of our size. We're obviously growing um, as as there continues to be a need and interest from payers in our in our model. Now imagine Corbin that uh, you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Eleanor Health is fully realized. How does that world look like? First and foremost, we want to change the standard of care for for people, uh, you know, affected by substance use disorder and mental health needs, and we want to change how how it's paid for. Um, so we want providers who are doing right for their patients being paid being paid for the impact that they're having. So if I were to wake up tomorrow, it would be a world where people aren't fired from treatment because they relapse in a in a relapsing and remitting condition. So you think about somebody with diabetes you know, going into diabetic shock, no doctor would then say, oh, well, you're, you're no longer in treatment, but it's totally standard for somebody who is 
um, has a substance use disorder to relapse and then to be kicked out of treatment. That's, that is, that is the standard. So it would be for people not to be kicked out, not stigmatized, to have access to, you know, in-person and virtual care, to have access to the medications that they need in an evidence-based way. And for the providers who are doing it, doing it right and doing right by their patients to be, to be paid for the, for, for the work that they're doing. Because how, how big of a problem are we talking about? I mean, obviously, uh, substance abuse and, and, and mental health. I mean, I mean that, that sounds like pretty big to me. But in terms of like to make it more tangible, Corbin, uh, for me and, and, and also for folks that are right now tuning in, what kind of problem are we looking at? What, what's the size of this problem? Yeah, so in, in the United States, you know, there's between 20 and 40 million Americans who have a substance use disorder. So I say between 20 and 40 million sort of depends on how you how you define it. Um, the latest numbers say 40 million. Um, that includes, you know, cigarettes, um, nicotine, um, and then all all substances. That's a pretty big number. It's, you know, what what we say is it's, you know, eight to 10 percent of the United States is affected by a substance use disorder. The challenge is what comes with that. So people with a substance use disorder, 80% have another mental health condition, 70% have another physical comorbidity. So it's really the substance use disorder exacerbates these other conditions. And, and so not treating it together ends up being that these are incredibly costly to the system. They're going in and out of the emergency room. So um, those costs are incredibly, incredibly high in the hundreds of billions for the total cost of care for people who are affected by substance use disorder. And how have you seen perhaps the healthcare, uh, because obviously healthcare is incredibly regulated uh, and, you know, many of us, you know, would hope that, uh, that, 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 that the regulation, you know, kind of like catches up with the times that we're living in too. But how have you seen, you know, the healthcare system, you know, evolving to, towards the times that we're in? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, obviously, COVID meant that a lot more virtual care was delivered. And, and I think COVID also was a, you know, a good recognition that we all are affected by mental health issues. And so the surfacing of those mental health issues, people talking about the anxiety, the isolation, the trauma that they're experiencing, that has been good to reduce stigma for people to talk about the things that they're, they are impacted by. And I think, the regulations have followed in some ways, not not always at the same pace. So first, you know, reimbursement for virtual visits, that's pretty standard now, where before it was not always reimbursed or reimbursed at a lower level. That will further encourage people to um, and providers to provide virtual care. Um, in our space, there's a regulation that says you have to come in person for some of your medications that was suspended um, as part of as part of COVID. And there's a question on whether that will continue. So requiring somebody to not have to come in person would continue to expand access. But it all it all comes in fits and starts because there's always there's always companies and people who will abuse um, the openings that that the regulatory world has had. And so I think what we've seen in COVID as well is a number of different sort of pill mill like companies emerge that are just dispensing medications at a rate and through non-evidence-based practices that don't that don't make sense and that could be harmful to patients. And so it's that push and pull that, you know, where regulations open up, also there's a business opportunity and there's some entity that may that may abuse that. So we'll see, we'll see as things go forward, but 
that's always the unintended consequences that that happen when the regulatory bodies pull back um, is that they then feel like they have to tighten up when they find when there are some bad actors in the space. Got it. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. Perhaps I bring you back in time to that moment where you were maybe thinking about launching something of your own. And imagine you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Corbin? Well, I, w I don't think I'd do anything different differently. I don't think, you know, in terms of, um, I felt like I was called to do this and this is the best use of my time is, is supporting this mission. But you know, I think thinking smart about the types of investors that you that you bring onto your cap table, you know, you're especially in the early days, you're going to be working with them for a really long time. And so making sure that you understand what those dynamics look like, I think, as a as a, you know, second time CEO, but first time sort of raising venture dollars, I don't think that was as clear to me. And so you know, being thoughtful, if, if you're able to about what that looks like. So I probably would have spent, you know, I probably would advise myself to spend a little more time there and maybe spend a little bit more time bootstrapping a little bit longer um, before taking taking that capital. I think, you know, it just it, it, you know, can help shape, of course, the business and drive growth of the business. But, you know, just being thoughtful about that. So just to follow up on that, because I love that, if you were to have the opportunity of being more thoughtful, and let's say to expand the question, and, and you had three traits that you would look for in an investor. Because, I mean, every founder needs to raise money. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are right now listening, like thinking, oh, I wish, you know, I could, you know, get the insights from Corbin as to what would those things, you know, that she will be looking for now that she's had the time to go around the block for so many, you know, financing cycles. What would be the three things that you would look for in an investor if you had to do it all over again? I would talk to other founders for sure about their, I would talk to other female founders with their experience. Um, Cause I think investors, you know, they, they get, they earn reputations and those reputations vary based on whether you're talking to another investor who is, you know, peers with, with them or founders who have worked with them. So I would spend some time understanding how they engage as an investor at the board level. Um, you know, what, what, what value they bring. Cause I think the other piece is, you know, we, we just went through a period, we're not in it now, but money, money came pretty freely. And so what you want on top of that money is value. So what, what value can an, an investor bring? So I think having those conversations, you know, I often give this advice to founders is, you know, in, in the healthcare space, there are a number of strategic investors. And what I would say about strategics is, you know, make sure you have that commercial contract signed before you 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 sort of partner on the investment side. I think strategics can be incredibly valuable um if if it's coincides with uh with a commercial contract, but if it doesn't coincide with a commercial contract and that commercial contract can't get over the line, it actually can be a negative to the to the business. Wow, I love that. I love that. Having the commercial uh, site done before the investment, you know, comes in. I, I really love that, Corbin. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, well, I'm on um, I'm on LinkedIn, Corbin Petro. Uh, my email is corbin at eleanorhealth.com. Pretty good at responding to email. I can't always promise to respond to everything. I'm better on email than I am on LinkedIn, but those are, those are probably the two best ways to to find me. 
Amazing. Well, Corbin, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Awesome. Thank you, Alejandro. Appreciate you having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.